0: European Heart Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 44, Issue 6, Focus Issue Ischemic Heart Disease, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea, read to you by Morgan Bryan. Optimal Management of Myocardial Infarction, from Invasive Treatment to Secondary Prevention and Rehabilitation. This issue contains two contributions from our Top 10 Article Series. In The Year in Cardiovascular Medicine 2022, the top 10 papers in acute cardiac care and ischemic heart disease, Susanna Price and colleagues from the Imperial College London in the United Kingdom discuss contributions published last year that may influence future research and the management of ischemic heart disease patients and those requiring acute cardiac care. In the Year in Cardiovascular Medicine 2022, the Top 10 Papers in Diabetes and Metabolic Disorders, European Heart Journal editors Francesco Constantino, Niklaus Marx, and Subdo Verma do the same thing for diabetes and metabolic disorders. The issue continues with a focus on ischemic heart disease. In a meta-analysis article entitled Exercise-Based Cardiac Rehabilitation for Coronary Heart Disease, a Meta-Analysis. Grace Dibbon and colleagues from the University of Glasgow in the United Kingdom note that coronary heart disease, or CHD, is the most common reason for referral to exercise-based cardiac rehabilitation globally. However, the generalizability of previous meta-analyses of Randomised Controlled Trials, or RCTs, is questioned. Therefore, a contemporary updated meta-analysis was undertaken. Database and trial registry searches were conducted up to September 2020 seeking RCTs of exercise-based interventions with greater than or equal to six months' follow-up, compared with no exercise control for adults with myocardial infarction, or MI, angina pectoris, or following coronary artery bypass graft, or cabbage, or percutaneous coronary intervention, or PCI. The outcomes were pooled using random effects meta-analysis. A total of 85 RCTs with greater than 23,000 participants, with a median of 12 months follow-up, were included. Overall exercise based cardiac rehabilitation was associated with significant risk reductions, or RRs, in cardiovascular mortality, RR 0.74, number needed to treat, or NNT 37, hospitalizations, RR 0.77, NNT 37, and MI, RR 0.82, NNT 100 there was no significant impact on overall mortality, cabbage, or PCI. No significant difference in effects were found across different patient groups. Dibben et al. conclude that their review confirms that participation in exercise-based cardiac rehabilitation by patients with CHD receiving contemporary medical management reduces cardiovascular mortality, recurrent cardiac events, and hospitalizations. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Sherry Grace from York University in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Grace concludes that we more greatly resource and implement all other clinical guideline recommendations for cardiovascular disease patients when compared with the cardiac rehabilitation referral recommendation, although implementation of optimal medication therapy is also suboptimal. While more trials in underrepresented groups of high-capacity, readily accessible models, as well as implementation trials are needed, it is hoped policymakers will turn to implementation. Indeed, the World Health Organization has almost completed their package of Interventions for Rehabilitation for Ischemic Heart Disease, which, should it be ratified by Member States soon, will support implementation of cardiac rehabilitation in Europe and beyond. In patients with acute MI or AMI, the treatment of choice is PCI of the infarct-related artery. In patients with MI and multivessel coronary artery disease, additional PCI of the non-infarct-related artery further reduces death or MI. However, Whether selective PCI guided by fractional flow reserve, or FFR, is superior to routine PCI guided by angiography alone is unclear. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled, Fractional Flow Reserve Versus Angiography Guided Strategy in Acute Myocardial Infarction with Multivessel Disease, a Randomized Trial, Jiu Myung Lee and colleagues from the University School of Medicine in Seoul, South Korea, sought to compare FFR-guided PCI with angiography-guided PCI for non-infarct-related artery lesions among patients with AMI and multivessel disease. Patients with AMI and multivessel coronary artery disease who had undergone successful PCI of the infarct-related artery were randomly assigned to either FFR-guided PCI, FFR less than or equal to 0.80, or angiography-guided PCI, diameter stenosis of greater than 50%, for non-infarct-related artery lesions. The primary endpoint was a composite of time-to-death, MI, or repeat revascularization. A total of 562 patients underwent randomization. PCI was performed for the non-infarct-related artery in 64.1% in the FFR-guided PCI group and in 97.1% in the angiography-guided PCI group and resulted in significantly fewer stents used in the FFR-guided PCI group. At a median follow-up of 3.5 years, the primary endpoint occurred less frequently in the FFR-guided PCI group than in the angiography-guided PCI group. 7.4% versus 19.7%, P equaling 0.003. The authors conclude that in patients with AMI and multivessel coronary artery disease, a strategy of selective PCI using FFR-guided decision-making is superior to a strategy of routine PCI based on angiographic diameter stenosis for treatment of non-infarct-related artery lesions regarding the risk of death, MI, or repeat revascularization. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Shamir Mehta and Brian McGrath from the Population Health Research Institute, McMaster's University in Ontario, Canada. The authors conclude that it is possible, perhaps even likely, that intravascular imaging assessing plaque morphology is complementary to a physiology-guided strategy. However, until the results of Complete 2 are known, and based on the results of the current randomized trials, either physiology guided or angiography guided strategy, Complete revascularization strategy is appropriate for the management of non culprit lesions in patients with MI. Outcomes of ischemic heart disease improved during recent decades, alongside better risk factor management. An implementation of guideline-recommended treatments. In a clinical research article entitled, Long-term mortality, cardiovascular events, and bleeding in stable patients one year after myocardial infarction, a Danish nationwide study. Daniel Mulleger Christiansen and colleagues from the Danish Heart Foundation in Copenhagen, Denmark, note that it is unknown whether this applies to stable patients who are event-free one year after MI. Using nationwide Danish registries, the authors included all patients with first-time MI during 2000 to 2017 who survived one year free from bleeding and cardiovascular events. N equaling 82,108, median age 64 years, 68% male. Follow-up started one year after MI and continued through January 2022. Crude risks of mortality, cardiovascular events, and bleeding were estimated in consecutive three-year periods. Standardised risks were calculated with respect to the distribution of age, sex, comorbidities, and treatments in the latter period. Guideline-recommended treatment use increased during the study period, e.g. statins 69-92%, to And PCI 24 to 68%. The crude five year risks of outcomes decreased, or P trend less than 0.001, mortality 18.6%, recurrent MI 7.5%, bleeding 3.9%. Crude five year risk of mortality in 2015 to 2017 was as low as 2.6% for patients aged less than 60 years. Use of guideline-recommended treatment was associated with improved outcomes. The authors conclude that for patients who were event-free one year after MI, the long-term risk of mortality, cardiovascular events, and bleeding decreased significantly along with an improved use of guideline-recommended treatments between 2000 and 2017. In the most recent period, one year after MI, the risk of additional events was lower than previously reported. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Nicolas D'Anchon from the Hôpital Saint-Joseph in Paris, France. D'Anchon concludes that whatever the potential limitations of the Danish data, the results presented here are particularly encouraging and the observed decline in long-term mortality is indisputable. While cardiovascular diseases are still the number one killer worldwide, it seems that, provided treatment can be given as appropriate and with an optimal healthcare coverage, the time is soon to come when patients hospitalised for an MI will have a life expectancy nearly the same as that of the general population. Eye sensitivity troponin T or HSTNT plays a key role in the assessment of patients with or without suspected MI in several clinical settings. In a clinical research article entitled "Serial Troponin T and Long-Term Outcomes in Suspected Acute Coronary Syndrome," Manan Parikh and colleagues from the Copenhagen University Hospital in Denmark point out that the long-term prognostic implications of serial high-sensitivity troponin concentrations in subjects with suspected acute coronary syndrome or ACS are unknown. Individuals with a first diagnosis of MI, unstable angina, observation for suspected MI, or chest pain from 2012 through 2019 who underwent two HSTNT measurements 1 to 7 hours apart were identified through Danish national registries. Absolute and relative risk for death at day 0 to 30 and 31 to 365 stratified for whether subjects had normal or elevated HSTNT concentrations and whether these concentrations changed by less than 20%, greater than 20% to 50%, or greater than 50% in either direction from first to second measurement, were calculated through multivariable logistic regression with average treatment effect modelling. Of the almost 29,000 individuals included, 2.8% had died at 30 days, whereas 4.9% of those who had survived the first 30 days died between days 31 and 365. The standardized risk of death was highest among subjects with two elevated HSTNT concentrations, 0 to 30 days, 4.3%, 31 to 365 days, 7.2%. In this group, mortality was significantly higher in those with a greater than 20% to 50% or a greater than 50% rise from first to second measurement, though only at 30 days. The risk of death was very low in subjects with two normal HSTNT concentrations and did not depend on relative or absolute changes between measurements. Parikh et al. conclude that individuals with suspected ACS and two consecutively elevated HSTNT concentrations consistently have the highest risk of death. Mortality is very low in subjects with two normal HSTNT concentrations, irrespective of changes between measurements. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by David Morrow from the Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. Morrow concludes that the robustly sized study of Periketal of serial HSTNT in patients with suspected ACS lends additional reassurance for clinicians of the low mortality risk out to one year of patients with serial values in the normal range and underscores the adverse prognosis in patients with serial elevation, whether dynamic or not. Interpretation of mortality risk in this setting, however, also should consider the magnitude of HSTN elevation and the starting value when considering changing concentration. Moreover, taking the totality of available evidence, patients presented with suspected ACS who have a rising or falling pattern and only one HSTN above the 99th percentile URL may be a shrinking population with the introduction of high-sensitivity assays and may also be at lower mortality risk with medical management, but should not be classified as low risk when considering other cardiovascular outcomes. Such patients probably warrant additional diagnostic evaluation in most cases. Primary PCI or PPCI is the preferred treatment of patients with ST elevation myocardial infarction, or STEMI. Pharmacoinvasive PCI or PI-PCI is recommended for patients with STEMI who are unable to undergo timely PPCI. In a clinical research article entitled "Late outcomes of ST elevation myocardial infarction treated by pharmacoinvasive or primary percutaneous coronary intervention," Javiera Jamal and colleagues from Western Sydney University in Australia examined late outcomes after PI-PCI successful reperfusion followed by scheduled PCI or failed reperfusion and rescue PCI compared with timely and late PPCI greater than 120 minutes from first medical contact. All patients with STEMI presenting within 12 hours of symptom onset who underwent PCI during their initial hospitalisation from October 2003 to March 2014, were included. Among 2,091 STEMI patients, 80% male, 52% underwent PPCI, 68% timely, 32% late, and 48% received PI-PCI, 33% rescue, 67% scheduled. Mortality at three years was 11.1% after PPCI. 6.7% timely, 20.2% late, and 6.2% after PI PCI. 9.4% rescue, 4.8% scheduled, P being less than 0.01. Jamal et al. conclude that patients who underwent late PPCI had higher mortality rates than those undergoing a pharmacoinvasive strategy. Despite rescue PCI being required in a third of patients, a pharmaco-invasive approach should be considered when delays to PCI are anticipated, as it achieves better outcomes than late PPCI. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by J.J. Coglan from the Technische Universität München in Germany and Borá Ibenes from the EES Fundación Jiménez-Diez University Hospital in Madrid, Spain. The authors conclude that overall, the data presented by Jamal et al should not be interpreted as challenging the primacy of timely PPCI for patients with STEMI. Rather, they remind us that the pharmacoinvasive approach still has a role in the treatment of STEMI and that the basic tenet of treatment for patients presenting with an occluded artery is to open the artery and restore perfusion as soon as possible. The old adage, time is muscle, remains as relevant today as when it was first coined by Eugene Braunwald over 50 years ago. For patients with an acutely occluded artery, timely reperfusion is the goal. This can be achieved via fibrinolysis if timely PPCI is not feasible. The upcoming randomized STREAM-2 trial, comparing a pharmacoinvasive with a primary PCI strategy, in patients greater than 60 years old with acute STEMI should provide further important information regarding the relative benefits and risks of these approaches in the modern setting. In the interim, we should all remember that delays have dangerous ends and strive to increase the proportion of STEMI patients achieving timely reperfusion by any means possible. The issue is also complemented by two discussion forum contributions. In a commentary entitled does plaque morphology truly not matter? Wen Wu and Dai Zhang from the Nanjing Medical University in China comment on the recent publication, "Plaque Histology and Myocardial Disease in Sudden Coronary Death: The Finnsjo Study," by Laurie Holmstrom from the University of Ullu and Ullu University Hospital in Finland. Holmstrom et al. respond in a separate comment. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will be of interest to its listeners.